Heine, 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 Heine Brothers Coffee, Heine, 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 Heine Brothers Coffee, Heine. Heine Brothers Coffee is committed to organics and fair trade, recycling, friendly and relaxing shops, and a great cup of coffee. Now featuring coffees roasted in our headquarters and coffee roastery in Louisville's Portland neighborhood. If you're outside of Louisville, you can get coffee shipped to your door by ordering online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com. Heine Brothers Coffee, Louisville's neighborhood gathering place since 1994. Hey everybody, welcome to The Past and the Curious. I'm host and creator Mick Sullivan, and I am very excited to share this episode with you for a number of reasons. Uh, the back half is a really fun story and song that kind of go all together they're all wrapped up into one so you kind of have to wait for the cell but it's it's all connected it's really fun um and it's about a food during the civil war that men just hated to eat and we have my good friend graham shelby graham shelby is one of my absolute favorite storytellers and he comes from a family of storytellers he happens to be the speechwriter for the mayor of louisville and is an all-around super awesome dude. I'm really excited about the story that he's going to tell. It's about cheese. The second story is not about cheese, but I think you'll agree that it is, in fact, pretty cheesy. If you want to know more about Graham Shelby, you should check out GrahamShelby.com to learn about his storytelling and writing and all of that. So without further ado, look out. Here he comes. Sometime around New Year's Day of 1836, Vice President Martin Van Buren received a strange gift. Van Buren was born in New York, but his ancestors were Dutch. And though he was the first president born after the American Revolution, making him the first truly American-born president, English was his second language, if you can imagine that. His family and community spoke Dutch primarily. Now, on average, we'd say Dutch people are pretty big fans of cheese. They've given us Gouda. Limburger, and Edom cheeses. But cheese lover or not, Martin Van Buren had a hard time figuring out what to do with this particular gift. He probably stood with wide eyes, scratching his famous huge bushy sideburns. I mean, what would you do with a 750-pound wheel of cheddar cheese? This wasn't the only one of its kind, either. It seems a patriotic farmer and veteran of the War of 1812 decided to celebrate his love for America in the form of enormous hunks of cheese. Colonel Thomas Meacham lived in Oswego County, New York, on a farm with over 150 really well-fed cattle. Inspired by American pride, Meacham built a few huge cheese molds in 1836 and began to make his enormous gifts. Besides Vice President Van Buren, Meacham made one for the governor of New York, a senator from Massachusetts, and even for several cities in New York, where they sat on display for all the citizens to see. At 700 to 750 pounds apiece, these cheeses were all roughly the same size, all except for one. As the big cheese, the President of the United States should probably receive 
the biggest cheese, right? And so, President Andrew Jackson also received his gift from Colonel Meacham, a 1,400-pound wheel of cheese. Consider, in the 1830s, there was no UPS or FedEx. There was barely even a railroad to speak of. So it took a team of horses and several different boats weeks to transport the cheeses over land, via canal, and ultimately by ocean from New York City up the Chesapeake Bay and to Washington, D.C. When Andrew Jackson accepted the colossal cheese chunk in January, he had about a year left in his second term as president. He liked cheese as much as the next guy, so it was his hope not to have any cheese left over when he left office. But this task turned out to be more difficult than he might have thought. With no convenient place to put it in the meantime, the cheddar wheel was left in the entrance hall of the White House. Imagine coming to a place such as the White House, entering the stately manor by the front door, and being greeted by a cheese wheel, which was four feet in diameter and two feet thick. In all honesty, if you would have made it close enough to get near the front door of the White House, you probably wouldn't have been completely surprised to find the cheese waiting inside. Your nose would have warned you. You see, pretty soon, it started to smell. It's cheese. And that's what cheese does, especially in the hot Washington summer that it would sit through. Now, the cheese didn't sit there untouched. Andrew Jackson ate it, his staff ate it. When he had guests, you know, dignitaries, politicians, and just regular visitors, they were invited to break a chunk off and take it with them. But 1,400 pounds of cheese, a lot of cheese. So most of it sat in the entry hall of the White House for the entire year of 1836. This year was an election year, and America would see Vice President Martin Van Buren beat William Henry Harrison in the race to take Jackson's presidential place. The law stated that Van Buren would take over in the White House on March 4th, 1837. You might imagine that with a 750-pound block of his own, Van Buren was sick of cheese and hoped that Jackson would do something to get rid of the largest, aging, stinkiest of wheels before his own term began. Easier said than done. Jackson could not do it alone, and he could not do it with his friends. So on February 22nd, 1837, in honor of George Washington's birthday, Jackson would hold his final public reception. The doors of the White House were flung open, and the general public was welcomed inside to eat old cheese. One newspaper gave a preview of the event. We understand the president designs to offer this great cheese, which is finely flavored and in fine preservation, to his fellow citizens who visit him on Wednesday next. Wednesday next rolled around, the doors were opened, and 10,000 people descended on the wheel of cheese, like a pack of wolves. It only took two hours for the wheel to disappear. People love free food. One witness wrote this. It was served up in the salle à manger, and the whole atmosphere of every room and throughout the city was filled with the odor. We have met it at every turn. The halls of the capital have been perfumed with it, from the members who partook of it having carried away great masses in their coat pockets. The scene in the dining room soon became as disagreeable as possible, and I gladly left it, 
after a brief observation, and mingled with the beauteous and brilliant throng in the East Room. Another, more colorful account from a newspaper correspondent describes an in vibrant, almost palatable detail. Mr. Vice President Martin Van Buren was there to eat cheese. Mr. Daniel Webster was there to eat cheese. Mr. Levi Woodbury, Secretary of the Treasury. Colonel Thomas Hart Benton. Mr. Mallon Dickerson, Secretary of the Navy. And the gallant Colonel J. Trowbridge were eating cheese. The court, the fashion, the beauty of Washington were all eating cheese. Officers in Washington, foreign representatives in stars and garters, gay, joyous, dashing, and gorgeous women in all the pride and panoply and pomp of wealth were there, eating cheese. Cheese, cheese, cheese was on everybody's lip and in everybody's mouth. All you heard was cheese. All you saw was cheese. All you smelt was cheese. It was cheese, cheese, cheese. Streams of cheese were going up in the avenue in everybody's fists. Balls of cheese were in a hundred pockets. Every handkerchief smelt of cheese. The whole atmosphere for half a mile around was infected with cheese. While perhaps tongue-in-cheek, it is not too far off from the reality of the situation. Once he took over as president, Martin Van Buren told a friend that he had to replace the White House drapes because they essentially became cheese napkins for the greasy-handed public. More still, he had to scrub and air out the cheese-crumb-trampled carpets and wash and repaint the walls because the smell of cheese was so stubbornly strong long after the wheel was gone. You may ask what became of Van Buren's own half-size cheese wheel of only 750 pounds. Well, he never really touched it. Instead, after the cheese incident, he capitalized on cheese fever that had swept Washington and sold it to a merchant in town. This merchant cut it into smaller pieces and sold it to the general public in case they didn't get enough on February 22nd. So, who's hungry? Say, I think it's time for a quiz. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Whoa, boy. It's quiz time again. In 1865, a naval battle occurred between Brazil and Uruguay. The underprepared Uruguayan ship ran out of cannonballs, so they had to improvise. Do you know what they fired out of their cannons instead? With no other options, the captain ordered some stale cheese be fired at the Brazilian boat. Three wheels of cheese were fired, and the first two missed their mark. But the third one hit the mast and took down the sail. Question number two. Each year, hundreds of people from all over the globe rush to Cooper's Hill, England to chase what down a hill? Cheese. They chase cheese. And it looks quite dangerous as a horde of people run, roll, and tumble head over tail to be the first one to get the wheel of cheese that has been rolled ahead of them. The origins are iffy. Some say that the practice descends from farmers creating a contest to see whose animals would get the rights to graze. But others say it comes from a Viking end of winter tradition which involves a community 
building a wheel of wood and straw, lighting it on fire, and rolling it down the hill in a sort of cleansing ceremony. Whatever the case, it would really be something unusual to see. And your third and final question. According to a study published in Time magazine, can you guess what the most stolen food in the world is? Oh, weird. It says it's rice cakes? Just kidding, it's cheese. According to a study, 4% of the cheese produced in the world is stolen. That's a lot of contraband cheddar and bootleg brie. But supermarkets view it as a high-risk product now. I guess it's just too Gouda to pass up. Oh, come on, man. Boo. Okay, before our next bit, I'm going to play part of a song for you. It's a well-known old song, which we'll talk about in the story. Now, I'll admit, it's a pretty sad song. But I want you to get a feel for the way that the lyrics, the rhythm, and the melody were written. I would imagine that you've heard it before. Either way, you're going to want to hear it again because it's going to make the rest of the story make sense. And I'm pretty sure you're going to like where it goes. I think it's kind of funny. To say the American Civil War was hard on people is an understatement. Deaths from battlefield wounds were plentiful, illness and disease was even more common. It was a very sad time for families who were torn apart. But you might be surprised to learn that it was also hard on people's stomachs. What was a soldier far from home supposed to eat? Largely, soldiers would eat what the army could give a man and all of his fellow soldiers. In most cases, this wasn't much. You see, though canning foods had been invented, it really hadn't been perfected, and it wasn't as prevalent as it is today. There was also no such thing as artificial refrigeration, and ice was only easily available in the cold months of winter. So, how do you feed an army of hungry mouths spread out over thousands of miles with food that won't spoil. Well, you take a cue from history. Since the days of the Romans, one food has satisfied the grumbling stomachs of soldiers, while at the same time leaving those same soldiers to grumble about the unpleasant act of actually eating it. Later, and long before the 1860s, sailors on naval ships, privateer vessels, and whaling boats 
were always in need of a cheap food that wouldn't spoil. And so that magic food was always found on board, and they were called ship's biscuits. Now, during the Civil War, the recipe for ship's biscuits was still used like crazy. Only now, the unfortunate meal was called by another name, hard tack. Now, if you're not clear on what hard tack is, imagine it in your mind as we describe. Picture a cracker. Now, it can either be round or square in shape, but hard tack is usually larger than a modern cracker. It was commonly around the size of the palm of an adult's hand. It was usually about three quarters of an inch thick, as thick as a school notebook, or, you know, much thicker than the run-of-the-mill grocery store saltine cracker. Now, you might wonder what ingredients go into a batch of hardtack. If you're looking for bold flavors or a sweet treat, well, you'll have to look elsewhere. But if you want to cook a batch for yourself, you only need to look in your pantry. All it contains is flour and water. Perhaps a little salt, if you're lucky, but probably not. But here's the kicker. An important detail about making sure hardtack doesn't spoil at sea or in the field is that it is baked at a low temperature for a very long time. So it has almost no air inside of it, and more importantly, absolutely no moisture. Of course, this means it is rock hard. Like biting into a rock hard. Seriously. And for this reason, soldiers would regularly refer to hardtack crackers with such lovely nicknames as tooth dullers and molar breakers. But the names fit. Consider yourself warned. If you aren't careful when eating hardtack, you could very well break a tooth. No joke, there are plenty of stories of poor soldiers who, on top of everything else, lost a tooth or two on account of biting right in to a piece of hardtack. Now, there were ways to soften it, which is definitely what we'd advise if you were going to try it yourself. Now, you could soak it into a paste and fry it, which can actually be pretty delicious. You can also just hold it in your mouth for a long time and let the saliva sleep into the plaster-like bread and slowly soften it. Other men would put it underneath their cap on a hot day. The sweat and moisture from the top of their head would slowly soften it into a more edible wet bread. That might add some salty flavor to boot now that I think about it. But it wasn't uncommon for men in a hurry to get that food into their starving bellies to just dive right in to a fresh hardtack cracker. Now, as we'll see, even when men go to war and break teeth, they don't leave their sense of humor behind with their families and farms and everything else. But first, a gross warning. Gross alert. Gross alert. Gross alert. This is not a test. This is not a test. This is gross. Sometimes living creatures would find their way into a batch of hardtack. As you can imagine, it made for quite a rude surprise the first few times a soldier bit in, only to find some worms inside. It happened. In fact, it happened often enough 
that some men rejected the humorous hardtack nicknames like molar breakers in favor of calling the treat or non-treat worm castles. Still, other men would recount tales of the rock-solid bread being infested with things like maggots or weevils. And since there was nothing else to eat in situations like this, the men developed a solution. They would submerge the bread in coffee. And this would do two things. It would soften the hardtack, making it infinitely easier to eat. But it would also force the bugs out. And those little guys would just float to the surface where they'd be skimmed off and thrown aside so the bread and the coffee could be consumed free of pests. But still, other men forced to eat hardtack after a pest infestation just chose to close their eyes and bite in. <sighs> Certainly, they'd try to forget about the wiggling little creatures, which were at least pretty high in protein. It was either that or go hungry. There's even a humorous joke often told in which a Civil War soldier claims to have grown so tired of eating the hardtack that he threw it on the ground in his trench. And when his commander scolded him for throwing his food in the bottom of the trench, which was against the rules, the soldier quickly replied, Well, I've already thrown it out three times now. It just keeps crawling back. But a soldier's sense of humor didn't end here on the subject of hardtack, lucky for us. It gets much, much better. You remember that song from a minute ago? Yeah, that song was as popular as a song could be. Everyone knew it. And it's not fair to compare the author, Stephen Foster, to people of today, like Katy Perry or Drake. But that's not really a far stretch for the point of understanding this. Foster wrote songs that everyone knew and sang, and singing songs was one of the most common ways to pass time and connect with a community. So in the 1860s, you might sing songs in the parlor with your family or your neighbors. You might sing as you worked. And in the case of Civil War soldiers, you'd sing songs as you marched, as you camped, as you did most anything. And pop songs were pop songs. People sang them everywhere. Stephen Foster's Hard Times Come Again No More, it was one of the biggest hits you can imagine. Now, if you're a fan of music today, I would assume you've heard of a man named Weird Al Yankovic. Weird Al has made a great career out of creating parodies of popular songs. He takes a song that people know, and he rewrites the words to something completely different, which is often very, very, very funny. And the essence of the song sounds the same, but the message is different. For example, he remade the Queen song, Another One Bites the Dust, as Another One Rides the Bus. Uh, he took Pharrell's hit song, Happy, and made it tacky. He even rewrote the earworm, American Pie, as a retelling of the first episode of Star Wars, as told by Obi-Wan Kenobi. But Weird Al was not the first person to do this. No, a century before, soldiers in the Civil War poked fun and got a laugh at their least favorite food, using the tune of Stephen Foster's hit song. So, as you might have guessed, hard times come again no more in the hands of some clever soldiers became hard tack come again no more. So, listen as I sing you a little bit of the hot 
1860s parody track and try to put yourself in the shoes of a soldier from the Civil War singing this song and trying to find some joy at a time when it might have been pretty hard to do. Let us close our game of poker, take our tin cups in our hand as we all stand by the cook's tent door. As dried mummies of hard crackers are handed to each man, oh, hard tack, come again no more. Tis the song, the sigh of the hungry. Hard tack, hard tack, come again no more. Many days you have lingered upon our stomachs sore. Oh, hard tack, come again no more. Tis a wail that is heard in camp both night and day. Tis a murmur that is mingled with each snore. Tis the sighing of the soul for chickens far away. Oh, hard tack, come again no more. Tis the song, the sigh of the hungry. Hard tack, hard tack, come again no more. Many days you have lingered upon our stomach sore. Oh, hard tack, come again no more. But to all these cries and murmurs there comes a sudden hush As frail forms are fainting by the door For they feed us now on a horse feed that the cooks all call mush Oh, hard tack, come again once more Tis the dying wail of the starving Hard tack, hard tack, come again once more. You were old and very wormy, but we pass your failings o'er. Oh, hard tack, come again once more. Oh, hard tack, come again once more. Hey, thank you for listening, everybody. This was a really fun show to put together, and I'm excited to share it. I need to thank Graham Shelby for his fantastic reading. Hope to have him back again. Uh, I'd also like to thank Amber Estes Thieneman and Rob Collier, who are my cohorts in the Tamerlane Trio. That was a recording of of them, uh, of us, singing at the very beginning of the Hard Tack, actually singing the real song, Hard Times, Come Again No More. If you want to find out more about the Tamerlane Trio, you can actually find them on Facebook. Um, There's a recording available. You can get it on iTunes. We also have a Patreon account for the Past and the Curious, and we have a new Patreon patron, Brennan Power and the Power Family. Thank you, Power Family. Yes, Power Family, yes! Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of that stuff. 
And by all means, you need to check out our friends at Kids Listen, the Kids Listen group, kidslisten.org. 